And I'm like, oh, oh. And so I put them on my face and I just go and panic and just punch the goggles into my face so they seal. And then I swim again for another two hours. Hi everybody, welcome back to this next episode of Beyond Victory. Ross Edgley today is, is with us and we've just been chatting before coming on just now and I can tell you this is going to be awesome. So I'm going to take the risk of saying this is going to be awesome 100%. You agree? I agree. <laughs> we've said it now, haven't we? We've got to deliver. Exactly, but we will. We're used to that, no? Yes. We're used to delivering under pressure. That's, that is it. That is it. If there's one thing we can do, I think there's that. Uh, and we're sitting here now in London, actually, uh, in the, I don't know, 12th floor, huge windows looking out onto some massive square, beautiful day. So, uh, yeah, so let's jump right into it. Uh, do you want to intro your podcast That's as well? That's right, yeah, Nick, like you just said, actually. I mean, I'm so excited about this just because I think we come from such different worlds in that exactly what you've done, you know, in Formula One and, and myself, um, you know, for those who probably don't know, uh, last year... Uh, became the first person to, to swim all the way around mainland Great Britain. And I know when we were talking on email, what I find fascinating and what I hope to sort of like reverse engineer and deconstruct today is this idea that for me and the Great British Swim, it was 157 days of swimming for 12 hours a day. So it was this idea of complete sort of uh, sensory deprivation. You know, I was there looking at the bottom of the seabed for 12 hours a day. Whereas with you, it's the complete opposite. And it's almost like sensory overload, you know, that you, when driving, have to make decisions, not only decisions, you know, life and death decisions, you know, with split seconds, you know, to, to actually process it. Um, whereas I suppose the... The kind of, for me, the outcome was either I stop, you know, and they take me to land and against my will, probably, you know, me kicking and screaming, or, or I continue and I reach Margate. So that's one thing, like I said, that I really want to, you know, deconstruct, you know, today um, as, as we chat. And I don't know, we've already spoke about an hour off air as well. So. I think I can put my plan in the bin as well. It's going to be totally, <laughs> right. totally freestyle. <laughs> no, but let's, let's attempt to, uh, attempt to stick, try to go a little bit on plan. Anyway, um, you, I just wanted to cover, you were on Joe Rogan, yeah, which is the greatest podcaster in the world at the yeah, moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, can you give, say something about him? Like, Oh, that was amazing. I think what Joe Rogan, and certainly what you're doing as well now, we're seeing, because of social media and where it is now today, we're in such an exciting phase. So with the World's Fittest book, you know, my book last year, I talk about how certainly within sports, there are many ways to get fitter, stronger, leaner, quicker. Um, don't discriminate against any or favor one. As soon as you do, you close your mind and limit your potential. And what I mean by that is now with social media, we're at this amazing sort of stage of human evolution where we're sharing ideas and physiologies and, and ideologies and everything. And it's kind of like what you learned from Formula One, I learned from swimming. And Joe Rogan does amazingly how it's just this melting pot of ideas. Um, so for me, that was one of the, the best things applying what I learned during the swim. But obviously, he's a foremost leading expert in, in, in MMA and how we could kind of you know exchange teachings and learnings and that and that's all it is I, again to slightly go off on a tangent but during the swim i read a lot of uh, stoic philosophy so marcus aurelius roman emperor uh, emperor and during the swim 
Yeah, yeah. So I would sort of swim for 12 hours and then read a bit of stoic philosophy on the boat. It was, it was a, <laughs> and it was interesting that... I did that during my uh, Formula One race weekends. Did you actually? Yeah. So this, okay, so this is amazing. I'm going to delve straight into my questions because I've got loads. So, so with, with Marcus Aurelius, he wasn't trying to write a best-selling book. Meditation's his book. He wasn't trying to write a best-selling book, a Sunday Times bestseller. It was just his diary. And I think a lot of the great Stoics, the ancient Greeks, you know, from Plato, um, certainly, you know, a celebrated wrestler but also influenced western philosophy that they understood that mind body connection and i think one thing that i took from the whole swim is this concept of stoic sports science and that's basically under adverse conditions you're able to still apply tried and tested scientific principles and what i mean by that is something I learned from the Royal Marines, that under complete stress, you have the cognitive clarity of like a five-year-old. You know, you, you can't process information. You know, you're not thinking straight. Certainly for me, when I've I was- experienced that. Right, and this is it. So for me, I, you know, I'm, I'm hypothermic on my swim. My, my, my tongue's falling apart from salt water exposure. I've got chafing on my neck. I've got sea ulcers that get in a, an inch deep, but I've still got to apply the same scientific principles and, and cognitive clarity. But for you, looking at dehydration, the, the effect of just g-force on the body you know overload of the senses how how did you continue to think so clearly cognitive clarity because for you like i said the consequences were life and death so what, what did you do what was it breathing techniques was it like tried and tested i mean going back to the williams aptitude test how, how did you do it what, what coping strategies um so my, the best example is probably then in the last couple of laps on the way to the world championship it was almost like red mist yeah because i was fatigued i was uh, dehydrated and you have the helmet so it's really really hot because there's no air coming in um so it's really all the clarity is gone Completely. And then adrenaline all the way into the rev limiter. Yeah, and fear, fear of losing in the rev limiter. Um, complete Molotov cocktail in the head. So, uh, <laughs> so all the clarity is gone. So what the only thing that I could do was in, in preparation. That's where, where the huge effort for me went into to then try and help me in those moments in a natural way. Yeah? Yeah. And, and so preparation was just really simplifying life, uh, focus just on the task at hand. So it was just family and racing. There was no, I deleted social media, no, no news, no nothing. Yeah? So it's complete dedication to simplicity. Um, I like a, lot of, a lot of meditation, uh, like even up to an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, and, and just calming the whole life situation down. Yeah. And that will then help you have a couple more percent capacity in, and, and clarity in those most extreme uh, moments. Yeah? Right. I think eventually, even in a race car where you have like long straights, you could have learned to apply some meditation even in those moments, which could have been quite powerful. Mid-race? Yeah, because you have, wow. on the straights, you have a couple of moments where you can relax. And, and meditation can be in the form of a flick of a finger. Meditation can be two seconds. It can be all throughout your day. It can be uh, little moments all the time. That's really the ultimate form of meditation, actually. It's always bringing yourself back to being present. Mm. Very difficult. Um, yes. And I think you can learn to do that in a race car as well. I never managed. <laughs> um, and so therefore, I, did, I was not able to use that then in, in towards those last races. Um, but I think that would have been... That would have been quite powerful. Is, yeah. that, is that something you've experimented with now? I've got images of you on a straight in this like meditating with your legs crossed. I was in this like monk-like state. <laughs> is, it, is it? But I love what you said there because a lot of people think that meditation is this thing that you have to light candles and then you're on a mountain Perfect. and then it's like no. It's so what you're saying is it's trying to tap into that 
that mental state. I love what you said there, the click of the fingers. Yeah, just let's cover meditation then. Everybody thinks you need to meditate, you need to go in uh, Google land and uh, switch off your thinking and go into Nirvana. And if you're not doing that, then you're not meditating well, yeah? And that's complete rubbish. Yeah. Meditating is just taking time for self-reflection, sitting down and being present to your thoughts. You can't switch them off, you'll never be able to. Um, but you can be present to your thoughts and if you learn to be present to them you can start to have a little bit of control over them and bring yourself back every time to presence mm -hmm. yeah when every time a thought comes which is running you away uh, with fear or whatever you're doing tomorrow or or uh, any worries that you have or, or, or uh, sufferings or whatever you can realize that they're coming again and you say oh okay now i want to bring myself back to being present and that's meditation yeah. and then with time you'll you'll realize that oh there's less and less thoughts coming the whole situation is calmer when I'm meditating and that will give a really really positive benefit to your to your life in general all these moments of, of calmness and and going back to what I, I love what you said then about almost streamlining stress so when you said it was family and racing and and did it get to the point where anything else so if people were sort of sponsors were saying you know oh, come and attend this event or you know there's a boat party you'd go no you know it's just racing and family is, is that how you coped with it is that is that almost aiding meditation where you would just say no because that's something with the swim that I was just purely thinking will it help me swim back to Margate circumnavigate Great Britain if the answer is no I didn't entertain it and is that is that it, and it sounds really bad actually it was almost I mean I, I talked about this in my tour actually with uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs um, my god you've done your studying huh? <laughs> <laughs> Now we're going into Maslow now. No, I've, never, right. I've never heard of that guy, but anyway. So yeah, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. For those listening who don't know, Maslow, a uh, famous psychologist, and he said that if you imagine a pyramid, and at the very base of this pyramid, he said that all humans have these needs that is just food, water, and warmth. As you move up, it's maybe family, friends, security, safety. As you go up, it's more like self-worth, uh, job security. And as you go up, it's kind of self-actualization. So it's, you know, but at the base of this pyramid is just warmth and almost homeostasis at that habitual level. You need your body to be in a nice state. And I think with certainly during the swim, there was times when, you know, my tongue was falling apart. So, you know, salt tongue, they called it, where through 12 hours of salt water exposure, I was, I was pulling off parts of my tongue. Ah. You know, no, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> and then there was even- Is it uh, all good now? It's back in one piece. Yeah, it's back to normal. <laughs> It's back to normal now. And then even so like, yeah, with, with chafing and stuff. So like they were about an inch deep, those sea ulcers on my neck. And so a lot of the media were saying, uh, Ross, you know, what, what do you think about when, when you're swimming? Do you think about your family, your friends? And I was like, no. You know, if my girlfriend's listening, I'm sorry. But that was like, it was so far up Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's family and friends. I was at the bottom of that pyramid. So I'm just like food, warmth and safety. And I suppose... My question is, is it the same that when you were racing, you're just thinking, wow, I need, you know, like you were talking about even deprivation of, of oxygen, you know, you, like I love what you said, like that cocktail in your head, your biochemistry is all over the place. So would you think about your family when you were actually racing or do you just think, I am just trying to cross the finish line safely? Because that's fight or flight, isn't it? Is, is, that, is that right? Come on, here's the opportunity. It's the love of your girlfriend that kept you going. <laughs> Yes. In the most adverse moments. <laughs> You're my come wingman. On, come on, come that's, on. That's right. Deliver that's it exactly. now. It's the opportunity. <laughs> you are my wingman. That's exactly what. <laughs> 
<laughs> but it is. Oh, yeah, I'm too honest for my own good. But it's I. What, what's her name? You? What's her name? Hester. Hester. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Hello, Hester. If you're listening to this, <laughs> you're such a legend. But would would you think about honestly? Would you think about your wife and kids when you were racing? Honestly. Um, no, but well, I mean, to what you were saying, yes, mm. it was the most extreme form of of simplifying and only doing what will help me to win and and be that be the champion in the end of the yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. But to the most extreme way, yeah, it's yeah. total total dedication. So, you, so when you're in there, you're thinking right, right turn, left turn, right, okay, and then, foot down. Well, in the car, unfortunately. My, my mind, I wasn't the most skillful at being present than in the car. A lot of fear coming in and thinking about, oh, what if that goes wrong? And I'm sure then I would be also thinking about like disappointing my family mm. because of all the effort they put in as well. Um, so when driving, that would be... Oh, so you would think about Yeah, it would be. Wow. A, and I think that was a weakness of mine. Yeah. I'm sure that other drivers are able to be much more in the moment wow. and have less of these uh, fears and worries and, yeah. and thoughts coming in. Because that's interesting that when uh, I deal a little bit with the, the Royal Marines um, down at Limstone and some of their psychologists talk about this idea... They said, you need to be more like a ninja. And I was like, okay, this sounds good. I'm listening. And they said, a ninja would have made peace with the fact that in a fight, they're going to die. That's the worst case scenario. And they've made peace with that. They're like, that's, I'm fine with that. You know, that's an honorable death. That's fine. So they were more focused on the process. The outcome was irrelevant. They were just like, all I, if we're fighting, I'm just going to swing my sword better than you. Whereas if they were fighting somebody who was uh, this fear of failure, that they'd already think of the outcome. So that's, that can you know, upset the process. And it's this kind of fear of failure that can interfere with motor skills and, and cognitive clarity that we're talking about. So when I was swimming, I was very much just thinking the outcome it doesn't matter. I'm just going to focus on the process, one arm in front of the other as efficiently as possible. But what I find fascinating, what you just said is... Look, the, the very idea that in 2016, we spoke about this, it blows my mind that if aliens came to this world and they said, what, what is that? And you go, oh, that's a car. They're like, okay, what is it? It's a motorized vehicle. And they'll go, right, okay, understood. Who's, who's the best at that in the world? And in 2016, we would have gone, him. <laughs> Do you know him? Still now. Hey, still now. Ass. Come on. What are you talking about? You're right. You're right. You know, that, that blows my mind. But, but what you've just described actually goes against what a lot of sports psychology says in that you were saying, yeah, I wouldn't want to let my family down. And you were even processing that, yet you were still the best in the world. That's amazing. So do you think almost your will to win overrided that fear of failure is what I'm saying? Because you, the sports psychologists would have said, no, 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 Nico, you need to focus on the process. And you're going, well, no, I'm also thinking about my wife and you know, I don't want to let them down. So would you say your will to win your aptitude, your, your driving ability, something was overriding what traditional sports scientists would say was the wrong approach. But then you're living proof because you're going, well, I did it and I won. So you're wrong. Almost the same with Michael Johnson. So a 400 meter, 200 meter Olympic champion that they said his running biomechanics, he's too upright when he runs. You know, you're shortening your stride. And Michael Johnson was like, Put your hand up if you've got a gold medal. <laughs> yeah, and then sports scientists were like, yeah, you're right. Usain Bolt, they say you're too tall to be a sprinter. When you come out of the blocks, you're, you're too tall, so you're rocking from side to side. It's not like linear, there's wasted kinetic energy. Again, Usain Bolt can say, put your hand up if you're the fastest man in the world. And it's the same with you that sports psychologists in a sport where they say sports psychology is everything. You need to focus on the process. You go, 
I beg to differ. And who won Formula One? Do you know what I mean? So no, but uh, so you're, I'm sure you're right. And the sports psychologists are right, which is why I said that it was one of my weaknesses. But um, no, no, none of my opponents are perfect either. So okay. they were stronger in that area. But I then beat them in all the other areas. And especially in preparation, uh, dedication, uh, attention to details, uh, progressing with marginal gains, yeah, making every, wow. taking in every tiniest possible improvement along the way in, in becoming the best possible in the areas where I have control over. Um, so it's all these areas where I then made the difference. And then if you sum up the total, I in that year was slightly above. I love and that. That's, uh, so that's the way I would put it. And then if I can come back to your fear of failure, it's something that I spoke to with uh, Matthew Syed as well, who, by the wow. way, you need to get on a podcast wow, with because yeah. you'd connect really well. Uh, maybe we should even do one, the three of us, because we're like all in the same. Amazing, we're yeah. all in the same kind of uh, route, I think. Um, and we, we talked about fear of failure. And the best way to combat fear of failure is the ninja approach that you, um, you really work on um, the worst case scenario in your head and you make that okay. So the worst case scenario in Ninja's case was dying and he really processed that in his head, worked on it and he, and he made that okay mm. and accepted it. And then, I mean, then everything else is just on the upside. Yeah. So then your fear of failure is massively reduced. So even if you're now out there going to buy a house, yeah, if you work on the fact that, okay, if you don't get that house now for the, minimum, for the maximum offer you're willing to put, if you keep on repeating that, that to yourself yeah, and you make that scenario okay, ideal case, you even already have a, another house which you have an eye on, which you say, okay, if this doesn't work out, I'll be very happy to get that one. Yeah? Yeah. And that is such a, a strength for you in the negotiation and reducing your fear of failure. Uh, it's working on that, on that worst case scenario. Yeah. So that's the, the, like one of the strongest learnings. And I got this from Matthew Syed, actually. That's amazing. But I was rubbish in that, so that, that's the problem. Yeah, because they talk <laughs> but about... But I've learned that now. That, that's, uh, they call that like negative visualization, which for me was... I was like, why would I think about the worst case scenario? That's a bad... You make it good. Yeah, exactly. That, that you know that the worst case, you're still going to be okay. But you did that. You spoke about that yourself, though. You did that naturally. You yeah. said you don't mind if, uh, if, it doesn't, uh, doesn't go wrong, if it doesn't go right, and that's why you were then in the moment. I learned to do that. But certainly during the, the Great British Swim, I realized that, and, and you'll know this, that, you know, with the, the sports media and the media, it's very, it's very polar in that if I had swum 1,600 miles and I managed to make it to Norfolk, but I didn't swim all, around, uh, all the way around Great Britain, there was this element that it would have been a failure. You know, it would have been, uh, you, you know, I knew that I was leaving the the swim a, a, a sort of hero or a villain not a villain as such but it was like you know there was this idea that it's go big or go home and I think it's exactly the same that and th this is what I find amazing looking at your career that once you did it once you achieved and we were talking earlier about you know this idea of your ikigai you know in in, in Japanese culture they talk about your ikigai is your sense of purpose your 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 reason for getting up in the morning you know and for you. It was, it was all you needed. You, you just wanted to be the best. You know, Formula One champion, that's all you wanted. And once you won it, it was amazing how you said, that's enough. You know, and you were able, and that is unique. That is so unique. When you look back through history at all athletes, you look at those who were able to legitimately, within themselves, just say, I've done it and be content. So I almost look at them as great humans, whereas sometimes a lot of athletes are amazing athletes, but they're slightly, dare I say it, flawed because they are trying to do it because of something that happened in their childhood, fear of failure, something to prove, but that drives them so much. Whereas speaking to you, 
it's amazing how it was just, yeah, I've done it. I'm not defined by it. Worst case scenario, if I didn't win it, that's okay as well. No, 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 that was not okay. No, nope. <laughs> it, it wasn't. That was not okay at all. <laughs> so what? And I would still be going now. Really? Of course. Wow. So you had to do it. Well, of course. Right. But but then once you that did, was very clear. did you feel did you feel cathartic? Did you feel you've done it? Did you oh, feel? Totally. Aristotle talks about you know I believe I'm. It's a relief, huge relief. Right. But yeah. even Aristotle, Ica guy, like I said, that is something that you're you're good at. You like doing. You can be paid for, and what the world needs. You know, in sports entertainment, Formula One going. Millions, that is what the one is. It's something that you did. So, did you feel, or Aristotle talks about, you know, entelechy, I, I believe I pronounced it right, but that Aristotle talks about birds need to fly, grass needs to grow, everything has this sense of purpose. So, once you did that in 2016, did you feel, I'm good, you know, I've got, I'm cathartic, I'm, I'm at peace with the world, I don't have to? Yeah, totally. And it's such a strong feeling. And that's why I'm so, I'm so lucky because I'm sitting here now. And, and ending with the goal having been achieved and then and, and stepping out on the, for me, highest possible point ever in my life in racing. I don't think I could have gone higher than that in the way everything turned out and, and everything worked out and the way the last couple of laps, everything, and the opponent, everything, perfect. And so now it's just so lucky to be able to sit here and, and it's still carrying me and it will, I think, forever. To end in, on a high like that is just beautiful. That's unique. You, when you look at, you know, Boris Becker, arguably, you know, he did that in tennis. When you look at Michael Johnson, uh, you know, 400, 200 meter Olympic champion, and he, you know, bowed out at the top. And I find it really interesting with uh, mixed martial arts, you know, that there are George St. Pierre, very recently retired, widely considered by many to be, you know, the greatest of all time. And did he, he ever lose? He lost, but it was the way that he came back. You know, when he lost to Matt Serra, he came back and like, you know, it was... A textbook it was just like poetry watching him really? so he learned and, and came back and then George St. Pierre said you know now he's retired and he says I've got no tears no regrets I did everything I wanted so you go into a very small in my opinion a very small group of people who was the best the very best in the world at their chosen sport and equally walked away very content and I think and I, I say this sort of from experience that, you know, after the Great British Swim, it was amazing. A lot of people were saying, oh, that's, you know, uh, comparing it. And I, and I like the story with, with Captain Webb. So 1875, um, you know, for those who don't know, 1875, uh, they said the English Channel can't be swum. They said it's uh, the tides are too strong. Uh, water's too cold. It cannot be done. Uh, but Captain Webb on a, a diet of brandy and beef broth uh, <laughs> in a woolen wetsuit and goose In a fat. woolen, woolen wetsuit. <laughs> woolen oh, wet come suit. on. Not, this is it. That's not funny. Swum breaststroke all the way across because I quote, front crawl was ungentlemanly like. So breaststroke all the way across. 23 hours it took him. And the record now is something like six hours. You yeah. know, so, you know, but it was just the fact that, that Captain Webb and when he did that, everyone was like, wow, you know, he can, the, the impossible is possible. So with the Great British Swim, a lot of people, the sailing community said, you can't swim around Great Britain. Corrie of Eken, giant whirlpool in Scotland. It's, the tides are too strong. You know, Cape Roth, Arctic storms coming from Iceland. You can't do it. So when I did it, there was comparisons to Captain Webb, but, and I've never sort of fully spoken about this on any podcast and it's only now that i can exclusive <laughs> on beyond victory here we it go is. no this is big is. because no genuine i wanted i wanted to actually get your opinion on this so this is kind of void of the podcast It's almost looking for you know i suppose your take on it so i can learn but a lot of people are like, oh, Captain Webb, and he was celebrated. Captain Webb was on, uh, he, had, he had his picture on a, a box of matches. You know, he wrote a book, The Art of Swimming. He was a celebrity at the time and widely celebrated. But what few people understand is after that, 
he had this desire to keep going for whatever reason uh, when you look back through history they said that he was a, a devout husband and he needed maybe there was that sense that he needed to um, earn some more money as well for his wife and and, and keep that lifestyle that he'd, he'd created for his family so he said i'm gonna go and swim niagara falls and they said no 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 like that's 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 swimming suicide and and people said to him how much money did you earn from the, the English channel? And he said, yeah, this much. And they said, do you want my advice? Keep that money and live as modestly as you can, you know, and just, and be happy, be content. Captain Webb didn't listen. Swam Niagara Falls and what people don't, and this doesn't- What, what do you mean with swam Niagara Falls? He tried to swim through Niagara Falls. With the water crashing down, he tried to swim Niagara Falls. Within all the whirlpools and the water, he tried to swim across, you know, and people were like, it's impossible. You know, the same way with the English channel. When they found his body, uh, he died. But when they found his body, everyone thought he, he, he died from drowning. No, like his, his body had basically been crushed. Ugh. His limbs contorted. And the reason I say this is, is because I mean, for all of the great British women, people see, you know, the, the, the lights and me coming onto Margate and hugging my family. But I'm very aware that the comparisons to Captain Webb, it's also like, no, you know, that, that when you've got a good thing and to kind of say, OK, that was I've pushed it as far. And I think it's exactly the same with with you, that that. The outcome with, with Formula One is, especially, you know, with your wife and kids, it's, it's like you have to, you know, bear that in mind. I know it's a hobby and it's a passion that burns inside. But did you, how, I suppose my question is, how did you walk away? Was it ever a question in your head or did you just go, I'm done? Or did you have that conflict in your head where you're like, another season? Like, did you want any more? Even looking at Alex Honnold recently, who uh, free soloed uh, Al Capitan. And he's, I want to have him on the podcast as well. well next. I mean, he's yeah. amazing. But, yeah. but, but people are saying, you have to be done, right? You have to be. You know, that's like, you, there's nothing left to do. And it'll be really interesting to see what Alex does next. So to, to, with, with yourself, did you feel that? Did you want to do another thing? Did you want to race again? How, how, and how did you walk away? Or why did you? What was, what was it? Well, I still, I still love the sport and you get addicted to success as well. Yeah. So of course I wanted to do much more and win another championship and another 10 championships or whatever. Um, but I just, there, I'm quite a rational thinker. So I just rationally really um, pushed myself as well and listened to my instinct. My instinct was telling me now is the perfect time to go away because it would put you in, it would be such a great thing for the rest of your life if you now stepped away in this moment after having achieved your actual goal that you had had until then. And of course, the, the, the danger as well played a little bit of a role, uh, definitely, because I was always one of those that was aware of the dangers. And, and one of my uh, fellow drivers uh, passed away uh, just two years before that, Jules Bianchi in 2014, um, in a big crash. So it was very, very on our mind. It was still on our minds, you know, that uh, it's still absolutely extremely risky, our, our sport. And, and there's some tracks and some corners which are just pretty crazy still. And you just know if something goes wrong there, then it's really not going to look good. Um, so that played a, a small role as well. And, and even now looking back uh, and looking at them driving, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I love what you said there, rationally. So it was a rational decision. It almost goes back to that oh, stoic totally, sports yeah. science totally. that you removed all emotion, any innate desire, and you just said rationally, how can I get that same? Because I mean, now your, your diary is incredible. Like you're so busy. So I love what you said. You're now just, I suppose you're realizing your ikigai, your sense of purpose, your intellectual, whatever you want to call it, just in a different arena. You know, so you're manifesting success in a different, and I think that's probably key. Whereas I think when you see a lot of champions, they they do just what they know best. You know, they they do they want to get that feeling, 
whether it's, you know, winning the 100 meter gold or, or, you know, looking at the UFC, you get those kind of aging champions who just keep going in and they just keep fighting because that's all they know. Let's, so let's talk about that then a little bit. So for me now, I'm still looking for new challenges. That's why I'm still keeping busy um, because I I'm always going to be a challenger. And now I'm looking for meaningful challenges. Um, which I'm finding in, in this podcast, for example, where I hope that we can bring across some cool learnings yeah, to, to all of you who are listening. This for me is a really meaningful challenge because we have experienced some incredible stuff in our, in our space. And I'm sure that uh, also now in all that we've said, uh, mm -hmm. hopefully some of you listening will already have been able to pick out two, three things which might add value to your lives. This is what I, I hope and yeah. I, I wish. But now let's take the moment and flip it a little bit your direction. No, I'm sorry. I came with questions. No, no, but I'm, very, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm happy. We can, uh, and I wanted to, uh, I think it's the perfect moment also to explore a little bit this drive, yeah? Which you've got in bucket loads as well. I had Toto Wolf on recently. Oh, wow. Toto Wolf is uh, now one of the most successful team bosses of all time in sport globally, not mm. even just in Formula One. And he was my team boss on the way to the championship. So he's the Mercedes team boss. And he said, in every... Uh, most successful person, the drive has to have come from some trauma or humiliation in, in youth. Yeah, uh, this is his concept. Yeah, because what else would explain that these successful people are just completely mad at, uh, <laughs> at just yeah. pushing more and more and more and into like such severe extremities? Yeah, yeah. Can we uh, so can we talk about a little bit where your Drivers come from. You were a water, water polo uh, player, yeah. yeah, professionally. Yeah. But then, and then you went, and now you have become. You were talking about the alien speaking about me being the driver. Yeah. The alien would speak <laughs> about you being. How would you say it? The most. I mean, the person who's achieved the greatest physical extreme challenge yes yeah, so something the, like that yeah like the longest sea swim yeah i think if aliens came to this world they'd point at me and say he swam for 157 days and 2000 miles and never stepped foot on and the aliens will go that's weird yeah, but even <laughs> more it's even more than just swimming you've put yourself possibly into one of the most extreme physical challenges and overcome them that a human has ever done, I would, I would suggest. Oh, well, that no? means a lot. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. The alien would agree anyways, yeah, no? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. You wouldn't became, be too picky. Yeah, <laughs> it's your right. In the, it definitely became less about swimming. You know, yeah. it wasn't about, uh, you know, are you bilaterally breathing? What's your leg kick? It, you know, it was just... Yeah, it's the size of the challenge. Yeah, are you going to keep getting in the water day in, day out? So, Perfect. You know, the, the Where does the drive come from? It was. I, I love, why? Why? I love that. Why put yourself into such a unbelievably, uh, incredibly huge, I've, tough? I've been challenge. asking myself exactly the same question because I absolutely agree with that quote, and I love that. For some reason, I haven't. And when I was even speaking on Joe Rogan, I think Joe expected there to be some deeper, you know, sort of darker thing that happened in my childhood and and i was like i i my my you know granddad one granddad was in the military the other one was a, a marathon runner my dad's a tennis coach my mum was a sprinter um so sport was all we did and i think my love of sport and athletic adventures just comes from this idea of set yourself a task and then just as an experiment unpick the principles you know of, of what made it happen so it's just i use myself as a human guinea pig and it's weird that that desire it's almost scientific it's almost you know what will happen to the human body if you swim around great britain we don't know no one's ever done it and i'm like okay cool i'm gonna try it and i think looking at future events I'm just saying, like you, there has to be a reason. I don't want to just do it. Because now, if people said that, some people were saying, oh, you know, swim around Australia and sharks aside and everything else, I'm like, mm, it, but it won't prove anything because it would just be a bit longer. You know, I'm, I'm looking for something that has a, a, a deeper 
science is if it expands our understanding of the human body or psychology then that's what drives me and i think when i am you know sort of long gone and and, and training at the the gym in the sky and, and i'm looking down i'll be like the the world was a little bit of a better place because of me people understand mental resilience a little bit more because i was there that that for me i suppose is this driving force of just of legacy and also the sports scientist in me loves looking at athletes and thinking like i'm, I'm a bad driver three driving tests i was awful and and with me i'm like that's something that i'm not going to do so i look at somebody like you and say you expand our understanding of that area for the human for as humans whereas with me one thing i'm really good at is swimming floating and eating and i'm like so i'll i'll push our understanding in this you know particular arena so my my driving force it's strange and i know it's strange because it doesn't i had a great childhood and you know two brothers so i always had training partners with we football tennis so it's it's weird that for me i i do think i'm just driven by just trying to understand oh no i suppose there's a slight fear as well of i know that in time my body won't be able to swim around great britain so you know when i'm 80 i don't want to ever look back and go oh i didn't use my full genetic potential and i think that's one thing everybody even listening and i love what you broadcast on your podcast because everyone can take the teachings and everybody has a genetic predisposition to be good at something and for me once i found that which was swimming i was like right i'm gonna just see how far i can push this but there'll be people listening now who will go i'm quite good at rowing and i'm like great talisker whiskey atlantic challenge rowing across the atlantic 3,000 miles i'm quite good at running cool ultra marathons barkley marathons sign up to that so there's all these challenges um for me it's just it's just swimming. it's what I, it's what i'm good at it's what i know and you almost feel this innate desire i just love the ocean so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't even a hardship swimming with, you know, minky whales and dolphins. It was kind of, you know, kind of the same way that it probably is with you with cars. Oh, you know, you, you just get it. You know, your aptitude chest at Williams, that revealed you just got it. You had a genetic predisposition to always be good at that, you know, whereas other people don't. So I think that was just your ikigai, your intellectual, your, your, your sense of you, you, why you were on this earth. Formula One just helped you realise that. I think for me, swimming helped me realise that. And everybody else listening, if you're really, really careful and you listen to your body and you, you'll find something. You know, even, even now, I think we're, it's such a, an exciting time in human performance with uh, Eddie Hall you know, deadlifting half a tonne. 500 kilos a human lifted 500 kilos half a ton kipchoge right now looking to break the sub two hour marathon that's i mean it wasn't too long ago roger bannister sub four minute mile that people said it's impossible for humans to run under a four minute mile cannot be done and and roger bannister was actually a medical student himself so leading physicians at the time were saying your lungs will explode your legs will fly. You, you can't humans cannot run under a four minute mile once he did the following year, so many people, it was it was completely disproportionate to the amount of people trying to run under a four minute mile. So many people ran a sub four minute mile because he almost changed the game. You know, the floodgates were open and everyone went like, it's possible. And it's the same now with Kipchoge. Everyone's going, you know, oh God, he's getting so close to the two hour. And it just changes, you know, that, that, that human, we, we, we think differently. And I, th I think that's the thing. I think, I think for me, I'm just trying to do my bit in that that arena you know human performance my bit which is just swimming
uh, in Greek mythology. Yeah, we're split in two. We don't like each other. We're missing half. Uh, we need, we're looking for self-acceptance, looking for recognition. Uh, it's a really, really um, intrinsic need, human need. Yeah, we're all we're all in the same boat on that. Mm. Um, do you think maybe there's some of that there that you're looking for self-acceptance because you don't you don't accept yourself the way you are. You 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 need to show yourself that. I'm, I'm the best at this or that, or, or you will need to uh, prove everybody else that you can do it, all the media that was, that was uh, ready to pounce on you when you yeah. fail, uh, or the millions of people watching. Yeah. Um, is that maybe a, one of the reasons for a big driving force, the, see, see, the need for recognition or, or starting with self-acceptance? That's really interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to take some notes on that so I can research that, because that might be. However, I always remember uh, going across the Moray Firth. So I was swam like 1,000, 100 miles i'm on the home straight i've just got the east coast of great britain to swim so i'm kind of on the home straight and um again actually you know to just purely because uh you know this is something now i'm starting to sort of unpick these these principles of the swim because in the moment i didn't really understand it um and this was again i've not actually mentioned this on on, on any podcast this was actually with my my dad's blessing if i'm honest um because i didn't mention this throughout the whole swim but by the time i got to the Moray firth on the east coast I physically, I knew I could do it. I was like, this is fine. You know, and the East Coast is actually easier because of the weather conditions and you're shielded by the sort of uh, southeasterlies coming in. So it was, it was an easier swim. Physically, I knew I could finish the Great British Swim. It, the coastline had thrown everything at me. Giant whirlpools, jellyfish, everything. Um, and again, so I've, I've never actually spoke about this uh, publicly, but it was on the, and, and it's only with my dad's blessing that I'm bringing it up now. It Thank was, you, dad. And I kind of knew something was wrong, but he, he, had not been telling me this idea of streamlining stress, which you were saying, did, would it help me get back to Margate? No. So my dad didn't tell me, but he, uh, he'd been diagnosed with cancer basically. Um, and my entire family had kept that from me. He'd known Sorry since, yeah, well, no, thank you. It, but it was, it was strange how they'd kept that from me all the way around, even the top of Scotland. He, he must've been going through so much. And he just, he didn't tell me cause he was just like, it, it won't help him. He told me in uh, the Moray Firth because he, uh, some people knew about it and he, he just didn't want me to find out from anybody else. Um, and going across the Moray Firth, I remember Storm Callum, which was the first storm of that summer came in. So I'm now stuck, unable to get home, sitting on the boat. And I said I wouldn't, the rules of my swim were I won't step foot on land. And land is there. So I could just get on and walk. And I remember it was just, you know, so you really ask these questions about yourself. And I'm sitting there and I just, my, my, everything that I talk about, stoic sports science going, oh yeah, cognitive clarity. No, no, that went out the window. You know, and I remember by that point, I was like, I'm going to finish. I heard that. My, my initial reaction, my gut reaction was just to get on land and to go and hug my dad. I just wanted to go and see him. I just wanted to hug him. I wanted to be with my friends and family. That's all I wanted. And I, and I remember my dad who essentially streamlined stress to quote, you know, to use that sort of concept for me and said no. And he just, he was so logical. And he just said, if you come on land, you can't do anything, you know, it, you know, I've got cancer, you can't do anything about it. If you come on land, you give me a hug and then I'll go, brilliant, now you're not gonna finish the swim. And he said, so you can come home and you can give me a hug, but you've got to do it via Margate. And so for the entire East Coast then, for 12 hours a day in sensory deprivation, when you're left alone with your own thoughts, 
I knew that my dad was back on and all I wanted to do was get back on land. So from that point on, I talk about this idea of stoic sports science and, you know, swimming with a smile and everything like that. I was just like, just swimming, just angry, just wanting to get home like, like I could. So to your point there, I really did have a conversation in my head, which was, am I doing this for the right reasons? Media aside, if I turn up at Margate, what will success look like for me? Um, will it be turning up and media and cameras? Where are oh, no, everyone's cheering? And I was like, because if that's the case, go on land now, Ross. Stop, just go on land. That's not the right reason to do this. But is it to just arrive on land? And like I said before, actually, with my, my granddads and my mum and my dad, we've all got this sporting you know, background. Or if I arrive in Margate and just my mum and my dad and my brothers are there and we all go for pizza and I can sit there and tell my dad about the minky whale, you know, around, you know, I was like, is that enough? And I was like, yeah, that's, that's all I want. If I can go and have pizza with my dad and tell him about the swim, that's enough. And so for, I, I had to make sure that I was doing it for all the right reasons. And, and, and even now, I'm so glad that my dad was strong enough was stoic enough because i wasn't i was i remember when we were sitting in in um it was by dunbar which was the second storm um in scotland and i was just sitting there and i was just i had like cabin fever and i was just i just want to see my dad and i i remember i turned to matt the captain as well and i was like i'll just go swim i'll swim i just want to i just i feel helpless right now and in my head i was just like if i swim i'm helping my dad because i'm getting back tomorrow and matt was like you're not swimming in a storm and i was like no no it'll be fine <laughs> and he was like no 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 so i wasn't thinking rationally at all um but it was only my dad and certainly the captain matt and my dad had spoke to matt as well and said get him back to Margate safely, but I know what he's like, he's so stubborn. He'll go and swim in a storm if it means, you know. So for the entire East Coast, and this is something that, that you know, I'm, I'm gonna sort of try to make sense of, but it was this idea that you, you have to do it for the right reasons. And I think, you know, for me, it was just, you know, getting back and now, you know, me and me and dad we sit there and we talk you know sports science and he's helping with the book and you know and he's like I said it's only now with his permission that I'm allowed to say that so it was sorry it's in a roundabout way and as you can probably tell actually it's still all in my head all very muddled up um but it was just I needed to make sure in that moment I was doing it for the right reasons and I think a lot of people don't do it for the right reasons to answer your question so when it is from a deeper darker meaning i think a lot of people speak about uh post-career trauma and you know and and sort of similar to a lot of soldiers that i talk about uh, talk to whereas there's that coping with that sheer low after such a high whereas for me i never had that because when i arrived back all I wanted was a pizza with my dad. You know, I was like, that's it. So then for me, everyone's like, oh, how have you coped? Did you get that real dip in, in? And I was like, no, you know, because success, to your point, it looks very different for me. Success now is just, you know, like my dad, he's, he's, he's doing amazing. So, you know, he's having um, immunotherapy and, and he's back on the tennis, he's a tennis coach. So he's, he's, he's back coaching and they've shrunk the tumors. And it's amazing. That's really nice to hear. And, and, and that for me, that's success. You know, so so now and, and, and I just love that the every single crazy idea that I always ever have, you know, my dad just rolls his eyes and then just sort of goes, right, let's work out the logistics, you know, and he's plotting, you know, how you swim around. So, so he it's yeah. So success now looks very different for me. Um, 
because of that. And that was the hardest thing about the swim. No one, and I've never, like I said, I've never told anyone that, but when people talk about jellyfish and minky whales, that was the hardest thing of the swim, the entire East Coast, to swim with that in your head. It's, it's only now that I'm learning to, and, and actually at the time I said, you know, to, to everyone, because we broadcasted it so much on, on, on Red Bull TV and I, I wanted to be as honest and open as possible. And I actually said to everybody, I hope you don't mind. I've had some bad news. So if you see that I'm a bit not quite myself, I've had some bad news, but can you respect that? I, I you know, I it's not my news to tell you. And then again, my dad just being the absolute Trojan that he is just said, oh, no, you can talk about it. You know, so he's he's almost practicing stoic sports science more than me you know it's only so i'm still it's weird that even even at the age of you know 33 i'm still learning from him you know and it's just yeah so that was yeah that was a bit that was a long long answer but yeah can we um can we jump into the hardest moment during the swim because i think that's always always yeah. very very fascinating yeah and how you fought through that and over overcame it what's the like pick one out what would be the the absolute toughest moment i'm sure that one was possibly the most the toughest one yeah. um, so take a second toughest one then please yeah so and after one that that's, you're yeah. right because after that everything else seemed a bit trivial but so, maybe before that then so before that up on, the north of, up on the north of Scotland yeah the worst so before that and I'd, I'd take this all day every day after the east coast but um, it was definitely Corrievecan so you know giant whirlpool in Scotland and um, Matt the captain turned to me and he said Ross giant whirlpool now people have lost their lives you know people have lost ships it's no joke you have to swim and swim hard and we hit it at a spring it pulls time. you downwards or, just, or yeah pull you, and when you actually you were sitting up on the boat you could see you know giant you could see the whirlpool you were like oh you know I, I honestly i thought i was like that sounds something like greek mythology i was like no it's legit a giant whirlpool in scotland i was like wow and we spoke to um some of the local fishermen as well local knowledge was amazing all the way around and some of the local fishermen there were, it got, Nico, it got weird. They were talking about, uh, watch out for the hag goddess. Ooh. And, they, you know, all this thing in folklore. I was like, who's the hag goddess? And they were like, and the Kelpie, which is this uh, in Scottish folklore, like shapeshifters, like mermen and mermaid. I was like, what are you going on? And so they told me this. And I remember when I arrived at the Corrie Beckham, the, 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 sort of the wind, the way it funnels down into the inner Hebrides, it just howls down there. So it's it's haunting. So I'm not superstitious, but at that moment, I was like, oh, like the hag goddess is here. So anyway, I'm turning, I say to Matt, I was like, okay, I'll swim and I'll swim hard for six hours. So I'm swimming like this. I've got, I've got six hours in my head. If I can swim for six hours, I'll get clear of the Corrie Beckham. So I'm swimming, I'm looking at my watch like that as I'm swimming. I remember I got three hours in and, um, I, I got stung by another jellyfish, the giant jellyfish of Scotland, like five meters long. But I've been stung so many times before. You know, it hurts. It's like a bad nettle sting. But it's not bad. It's on the face, yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's not bad. It hurts. Do you have Vaseline on the face or anything? Or? No. I mean, oh. they were even they were, the tentacles, they're so fine. They were getting through that anyway. Oh. And after six hours, you have to keep reapplying it if you did. So I'm swimming, I'm swimming, swimming, swimming as hard as I can, three hours. And then I get hit by this one jellyfish and, and it felt Did you different. see it coming? No, that's the other thing as well. Like sometimes it, it's certainly in the dark. You can't see the hand in front of your face, you know, because there's no light from the land in Scotland. It's so remote. So I, yeah, stung, bang, stung to the face. And I remember just thinking, oh, I said, that one feels different. If this jellyfish, it felt like somebody. <laughs> that one was the most unfriendly. <laughs> oh, yeah, real. Like, it didn't like me. That, that one was one. mean. It really mean. It was a hench one. And it, and it, but it felt like somebody had a, a hot poker. And they were like, it was like it was searing into my skin, this hot poker. I was like, oh. I swim, 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 swim. 
I swim for another two hours um, or something. And I remember I was just like, my face was now numb. Like I'm almost dribbling as well because it's almost paralyzed. That's part of my face. I'm swimming. And I look up at Matt from the boat and I, I go, Matt, I said, I'm, mate, I said I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, I need to stop. I said, I've been stung by a jellyfish. I said, but it won't go away. It's, I said, it's still, it's searing into my skin. And he looked down at me from the boat and he just went, yes, I know. Because it's still wrapped around your face. <laughs> and the tentacle had threaded into my goggles. And I'd been wearing the tentacle and jellyfish for two hours swimming so I took off I won't repeat what I said I threw away the jellyfish and the tentacle and then I tried to put my goggles back on but oh, come on just repeat we can do some beeps <laughs> I was, I was, I, I, yeah I was angry I was I was I was were you angry at the jellyfish as well I was angry at life I was angry at the sea I was angry at the hag goddess I was angry and I threw away the jellyfish and then and then I, but I tried to put my goggles back on because Matt's now shouting at me going, Ross, Ross, he goes, swim, swim, Corey Beckon. So I'm now being pulled. Another whirlpool. Same one, but it's pulling me back oh, in. It's one. a spring tide. So it's a really strong, it's pulling me back into the Corey Beckon. And I, put to, I go to put my goggles back on, but I've been stung so much. And I'll show you a picture later. And you go, my, my face has changed shape. My eye sockets are so puffy that my goggles won't go back on my face and they won't seal. So I'm being pulled into the Corey Beckon and Matt's going, swim, swim like that. And I'm like, oh, oh. So I put them on my face and I just go and panic and just punch the goggles into my face so they seal and then I swim again for another two hours I get clear of the Corrivecan we finally make it I'm now stung I've got toxins in my body my heart is like beating so fast my eyes my face has changed shape and I climb onto the boat at the end of that tide after six hours it's horrendous the worst swim I've ever done and I get on the boat and I never forget that Matt was just like well done mate um yeah okay tide changes in six hours see you again in a bit you know and it was just how unforgiving in that moment you realize you've done everything but it's still not enough. I still had 900 miles still to swim. So that for me at that moment, I was like, it's the, the, the ocean just doesn't care. It's unforgiving. Exactly the same with Formula One. It's so, it doesn't care about how many followers you've got, how much media, it doesn't care if you've got a family or not. It's unforgiving. And I think it's drawing that same parallel. It's when you know that and you don't, you know, there's that idea of sometimes people feeling, you know, sorry for themselves. And so I was just like, there was no time to feel sorry for myself. I could have, some people even said, oh, it's amazing, Ross, that you've not, uh, you've not cried or, you know, you've not been, I'm like, no, I want to. I was like, please don't think it's for any noble, brave reason. It's just the fact that if I wanted to get on the boat after that and, 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 you know, have a little bit of a cry and feel sorry for myself, I could have done, but I'll be back in in six hours and that's going to eat into my sleeping time, how much food I can take on board, if I need to sort of treat sea ulcers. Um, that was one thing that was never really captured on camera, this idea that after every swim, you know, my neck was like chafing so bad. You can kind of still see it there, you know, that I would, I'd have to finish a swim and I'd just have to sit there like this upright in my bed like that waiting for the wounds to dry because they were like weeping wounds. So I'd just sit there like that until it basically dried enough that I could put my head on the pillow. If I didn't do that, the amount of times that Matt would sometimes wake me up at two o'clock in the morning, cabin door opens, wind rushing down and Matt would say, Ross, need you on deck, tides change. I'd wake up like that and the bed sheets would have fused to, my, to the open wounds. So I'd have to rip it off before I could actually even get in and swim. So there was so much that wasn't caught on camera that when people ask about the darker moments or the, the hardest, it was always 
being so alone and and you're the only person you can rely on probably very similar to what you you do it's like you can't outsource help yeah you know you've got your team and everything but, but it's you're going around a corner at silly miles per hour you only have yourself to rely on. I think that's one thing that would be one of the nicest takeaways from this for, for listeners, I think, is is know that if you've prepared and like you said, you know, you've done all of the the research, you can rely on yourself. But know your, you know, that's what you have to do in so many it's like life, yes, absolutely, is is a huge team sport, but sometimes only you it's it's a real solo endeavor. I think that was the thing, just finding that. It was so honest as well, the swim, in that the miles didn't lie. The metrics didn't lie. You had to swim all the way around Margate. There's no tips and tricks and shortcuts. It's cold. You're going to have to swim until your tongue falls off. Chafing wounds will get so deep that they start going into like through the, the skin and then the actual like going down to the tendons. You know, even the ligaments in your shoulders will be contorted from swimming in 50 knot Arctic winds. If a jellyfish don't care, they will sting you in the face all day. If you're prepared to do that for 12 hours a day for 157 days, you might be able to swim around Great Britain. But if not, you, you, you don't stand a chance. I think it's, and it's exactly the same that people say, what do you have to be to be Formula One champion? If you actually wrote out what you have to do, the hours, the sacrifice, everything, people go, oh, that makes no sense. Even, and I love um, Steve Jobs, when people said... Uh, you know, oh, Steve, you know, Apple, can you, t- you know, tell us how you've just created this tech empire? And he just paused and he said, yeah, if you knew what it would take, you probably wouldn't do it because it <laughs> makes no sense. And would you say the same that at the start of your career, if somebody listed what you'd have to sacrifice and do, would you have gone, oh, or were you there like so involved that you just thought I'm in it now? You know, it makes, would you say it, it made no sense the amount of preparation you did? It defies logic how hard you had to train and the research that you had to do. Well, afterwards, I wouldn't say that, no, because the winning is just so damn awesome. And right. it gives my life so much, but it's always afterwards easy to say. Right. Um, but of course, it was extreme. But it has to be said, that, like Formula One preparation, it's not about like um, preparing and training all day long every day. Preparation for me is the recovery is like just yeah. as important for body and in Formula One it was almost uh, more important even for mind because a Formula One w- weekend is 200% intensity mentally it's the most extreme form of mental uh, intensity I've, I've one of the most extreme I've ever experienced and that every every two weeks four days in a row and so the re- mental recovery was just as important yeah. and again I did that like in a very very calculated way. Um, trying to perfect that and, and learning how best how best to do that. And because that that's interesting where people don't understand that fatigue, you have two forms of fatigue. There's peripheral fatigue, which is um, basically, you know, lactic acid in the muscles, you know, cardiorespiratory endurance. So that's peripheral fatigue that if you go and run 800 meters, yeah, totally. you will experience peripheral fatigue for those listening. Oh, that's peripheral fatigue. But what you're talking about is that central fatigue, your central nervous system, neurotransmitters, the chemical signals in the brain, that it was just fraud that after like so intense like mentally so how do you detox from that what what strategies did you have in place because that's I think something that everybody listening can learn from that when they if they've got a deadline at work or training you know how how do you combat central fatigue like that mental kind of how how, what's what strategy meditation so that's simplicity yeah so there's a family and then and no social media no news no 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 games no rubbish and then instead of that, it's maybe reading a, a philosophy book 
um, lying on the veranda. Yeah. yeah, that is the ultimate for or now nowadays listening to a podcast. Yeah, um, uh, I, I just listened to Oprah, Win Oprah Winfrey, actually, wow. which is becoming one of my role models now in podcasting. And she has uh, super soul, it's called. Yeah. And it's really, really inspirational and, and very, very deep, very philosophical with some great guests. And so just listening to something like that, that's like super powerful recovery. And, and you're making progress as a human being at the same time, which brings happiness. And I swam a lot as well for my F1 training. It was one of my main sports because uh, I also did triathlon. And if, if I can, uh, if in the process I had some experiences that might have been similar to what you had there um, or, or how maybe, or maybe I'll just add how it possibly benefited me from my F1 driving as well. So I chose swimming specifically because in an F1 car, you really can't breathe very well. Yeah? You have the seatbelts, super tight extremely tight and because I was always a little bit of the scared person I always pulled them much tighter some drivers just take it totally chilled out and leave them really flapping about but I could never do that because I would be scared so I had to pull them really really tight which again was a bit of a negative for me because it made my breathing even more difficult and then every time you're in braking or cornering you can't breathe because the g-forces are so extreme you have to tense your whole body to hold yourself in position to be able to control the car so breathing-wise, it's a really, really, really tough uh, sport and completely inconsistent and unnatural to the way of your everyday life or even to your normal training. And so I specifically chose swimming because I thought, okay, maybe it will help my body a little bit to get used to these this difficult breathing situations where you have to hold your breath, then breathe again quickly, hold your breath, breathe again quickly. And I think it really worked. It really worked. It helped me in, in exactly that way. And so that's why I really love to swim a lot uh, at the time. And it just made me then that little bit fitter in those toughest races where it was hot. And uh, Singapore race, yeah, we lose like four kilos of body weight in two hours. Doctors say it's extreme. It's a bit, it's a, I mean, I know you went through much more torture than that, but for me, it's like the most torture I've ever experienced in a, in a sports way. And there to have learned to, to breathe in difficult circumstances really helped me cope with that. And so that's, uh, that's one of those learnings. But apart from that, nothing compared to what you've experienced, of course, because it was always just uh, hour, an hour session or something, mm. not, not more than that. And, and never in the middle of choreo reckons with a <laughs> giant jellyfish on the face, <laughs> ripping through my, my skin and my goggles, and with the eyes so puffed up that I, that I had to uh, punch the goggles back into my face so that they would hold. <laughs> But so it, I was—I never went to those places. It's, but it's, you're so right that it, I think it's so similar in that that what you described there. I think just breathing, breathing strategies and techniques—they're not really looked at so much. But I think I always find with sports science, we kind of lack a lot of research in that area because we can't monetize it so people want to say okay here's the latest electrolyte drink carbohydrate drink protein drink because you know there's a commercial agenda you know whereas with breathing everybody breathes it's free so there's not as many studies on it because there's no you know there's nothing commercially to be had from there being a good outcome so i think that's absolutely right what you're saying there that when you start looking at just you know oxygen deprivation on any whether it's an hour whether it's coriovecan with a giant jellyfish it doesn't matter but you start starving the brain of oxygen and you are you know if you've ever done like altitude tests you know when you start looking at what happens to the people climbing everest you know it's fascinating that that people think it's purely physical and it's only just now going back to what we were talking about with with the ancient greeks they understood this mind body connection and it's this idea that yeah with completely starved of oxygen not or not even completely slightly 
starved of oxygen. If you're able to actually continue to breathe, Wim Hof actually, he would be oh, amazing. Legend. Oh, you yeah. You need to everybody listening. You need to watch that. The Yes Theory on YouTube. Oh, he's amazing. Wim, Wim Hof video. But he so talks cool. about so those those breathing techniques that he talks about to actually alter your biochemistry. He says that we're all alchemists have our own biochemistry. You know, so it's exactly that that too often we think of ourselves in terms of you know like mechanical machines. It's like no, we are these complex biochemical organisms. And if you're able to continually and efficiently oxygenate your body, even look at the pH that Wim Hof talks about so much that you know when you start to t make sure your body is slightly more alkaline, it's natural naturally more alkaline rather than becoming acidic, which you can do through his breathing techniques that, that he taught me. Um, exactly he, the he same. He taught you not, not in person though? Yeah, no, so I lived with him in Stroh in his house in Stroh. Oh, Nick, you're going to have to come out. Oh, it's come amazing. On. Well, this is weird. So it's, this is a great I, I Okay, hope you we're, we're continuing the podcast. Let's go. <laughs> we're adding another hour now. Come on. Good question. <laughs> but so no, so they're very quickly. So yeah, I, with Wim, he invited me out to Stroh. So this was before the Great British Swim and he was, you know, the cold was going to be a real issue. And one of the things that he taught me was not only this idea that we're atrophying these ancient age old mechanisms. So, you know, when we get in the cold, our capacity, Pillories vasoconstrict and vasodilate to try and thermoregulate our bodies. You know, so all of us in this room now, if I said, everybody, right, let's go and jump in an ice cold lake, everyone will be like, no, why would you do that? But it's this idea that our bodies like homeostasis. Right now, if it's cold in here, we just turn the heating on. But our bodies, as a result, we're atrophying these ancient mechanisms to try and, you know, control our temperature. And that's what Wim Hof preaches. So when I was living with Wim, we were there learning not only that physiological adaptation, that as soon as you get into the ice water, I mean, he's been doing it years. He's like, so when he gets in, he's just, his, his capillaries just almost like that. They pull all the blood away from his extremities, his hands, and they protect his vital organs. So his, that, that is turned on in him. It's switched on like our ancestors. You know, they wouldn't have anything. We, we didn't say now, oh, do you do a, do you do a cold shower? Do you do an ice bath? You know, our ancestors, it wouldn't have been an ice bath. It would have just been a bath. You know, because they, they didn't have the hot water. So they were, they, they're used to that. So there's that element, this physiological adaptation to the cold, which Wim taught me, that certainly helped around Dunnett's head, top of Scotland, when I was swimming in Arctic storms. But also this idea that breathing will alter your biochemistry. So when you get into the cold, you want that gas reflex where you start to hyperventilate. And it's, that's almost like your subconscious, almost like your subconscious is almost like a child. And it's going, get out, get out. It's misbehaving. This child is going, get out of the water. But your conscious has to almost override that and say, look, look, I know you're scared. I know you want to get out, but this is okay. Everything you're experiencing now, you know, with your hands going like numb, that's just like pulling away, you know, blood from your extremities. It's, it's okay. So through breathing and focusing on your breathing to remain present and in that moment, you're able to essentially override your subconscious in a way. I've, Wim does an amazing job and, and, and where he's taking this research is incredible. Nico, we have to go out to Stroh. It's, it's amazing, but he's, it's just a weekend and it's, it's like it awakens, like I said, these ancient age old mechanisms. I remember when me and him were sitting in there uh, in, in the ice bath and I sat in there, I managed to get up to like 40 minutes. And How the, much? 
40 minutes in the ice 40? bath. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. So we're sitting in there. We, he's got these huge barrels and we're sitting there like that and he's in the barrel next to me. And I remember I was, I was like, whim. And the, and, and the competitive element in me, the sports scientist, <laughs> I was there and I was going, whim. I said, I'm doing well, aren't I? And he, he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's all about listening to your body. I went, yeah, yeah, I'm listening, I'm listening. I said, but, you know, well, shall I do an hour? Shall I do 100, you know, 80 minutes? What shall I do? And Wim just kind of realizing that it wasn't about that. It's about understanding your physiology and breathing and everything. I remember he looked over at me and he just goes, do you, re do you really want to know what's next? I said, yeah, yeah, I want to know what's next. 60 minutes, was it 70? He goes, no, no, no. He goes, the next challenge. I went, yeah, I'm listening. He goes, the next challenge to truly master the ice bath. I went, yeah. He goes, is you need to get an erection <laughs> in the bath. And I was, he goes, that is when you can truly master your biochemistry. I was, I, to this day, I don't know if he was joking or not. And I started, I didn't try it. But I was like, right, oh, okay. But, and that's the thing with Wim, you know, his sense of humor is incredible, but it did highlight, I was so sorry, this is the last time I'm invited back here. <laughs> but but they, it, it was this idea that, yeah, altering your biochemistry, breathing, having control over your physiology, under extreme circumstances and breathing is one way that he does that and I think one thing that Wim is incredible at is pioneering our understanding of that because to date breathing meditation it's almost seen as something that oh you know they you know monks do but it's you know it's like no 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 it's available to all of us just breathing technique and that's why I love what you said just about it should be something that you can turn on whether you're you know going you know silly miles per hour you know in a, in a Formula One car or you know you're sitting in an ice bucket trying to get an erection you know it's the same sort of it's the same sort of thing sorry <laughs> so dear women if you're listening please uh please welcome us uh, over to your place then at some point soon again yeah? honest you would love it I'm you'd just, find it fascinating the only thing is I'm, i'm scared because um like i was watching the yes theory and they, they jump into the ice cold water for 10 minutes with him yeah yeah and they literally like they cannot feel anything anymore after five minutes yeah I'm, i'm really scared like where's it's, the where's the limit on that you're, I mean, you're right or you I, think it's all good they're safe I, or what? i honestly believe that when you again human biology has remained relatively unchanged for thousands of years so we are so much more powerful than our own minds often lead us to yeah, believe. i know but uh, things will freeze off at some point i mean i just met my, mike horn the explorer <laughs> who had to cut off his own finger you're right you're right because it went blue and it, it went uh, dead so you're, he had to chop off his own finger you're absolutely otherwise right. it risks infecting the rest of the body you, you're absolutely so there's right a, there's a limit to everything you're right but i mean some of those when you start looking at you know like ran fines who's amazing he talks talks about like uh, going into his shed and sawing off ah. his fingers yeah ah. that he, he just looked at them and just went yep they're no good to anyone oh, he saw them off. or he talks about he he got in the bath and his he, he kind of looked at his fingers and was like yeah i don't know if they're gonna sort of stay on much longer and they they fell off And ah. he, he left them on the side of the bath. Well, there you go. So how do you know that's not happening to you in the ice bath? Is it, well, it's exactly it. So that comes from sheer education, knowing that, yes, when you get in and people go, and they start that gas reflex, and they go, I'm going hypothermic. It's like, no, 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 no. Can I stop? You've been in five seconds. That's not hypothermia. That's the gas reflex. That's cold shock. Yeah, so where's hypothermia come in? many many minutes hours minutes down the line so so this is exactly it. and if you get out and you've got that cold management you get out you heat up your body have something to eat thermic effect to do there's strategies that whim on we have to make this happen you would love it oh my that goodness. when you do it afterwards oh my goodness <laughs> you'd say dear listener do you want a youtube vlog on that then you, you would me love and ross it. Vis we're visiting wim hof you would love and me it. chickening out after 20 <laughs> seconds and ju jumping back out and getting going home but he will he what wim has an amazing ability is he talks you through 
through the whole thing. So it's exactly what you just described, saying that feeling will be so alien to you as it is to most of us because we're used to now controlling our body temperature and things. But I, I honestly believe our ancestors wouldn't have thought anything about going swimming and across a, a frozen lake because that's what needed to be done. You know, that's that's what they needed to get there. They needed to go hunt. They needed to move their family. We, we were nomadic at, uh, during certain parts of human existence. We had to travel like that. So now, even sometimes, I'll, I'll barefoot run and I'll go running like, you know, around London and I've got no shoes on. People looking at me going like, what is he doing? And it's just like, but no, you know, we've atrophied these like, you know, ligaments, tendons in our feet by putting on these big shoes. So me running barefoot, you're looking at me like I'm strange. But really, you know, society has changed. I'm still, I'm working like Mother Nature intended. And I think it's the same. This is 100% happening. I'm ringing whim when I get off this. Honestly, I will make this happen. Everything that you're describing about just that alien feeling and that fear, that's exactly it. Actually, to, to almost quote you, you know, to, 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 to I, I know you're going to regret I, 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 this. No, no, you know I'm already I'm suffering now. <laughs> Because I know that I will, I'll do it. I'll, I would do it. Probably, same way that you said with, with your your public speaking. Not good. <laughs> the it's public really speaking. Not good. But now you're comfortable with it. I honestly believe, and I'd love to do this. And at the end of the year, for you to still be doing ice baths, ah, and we'll do. And we'll I do hate an the ice, cold. I hate we'll, the cold. Huh? It's the worst <laughs> thing. I hate it but so did you much. Hate, did you hate public speaking as well? Yeah, yeah. But I hate the cold even more. But do you hate public speaking now? No. Then do you feel that at the end of this year you'll be like, I love. I'll the cold. always hate cold. <laughs> Okay, we're doing this. So everybody stay tuned. Uh, me and Ross are going to visit Wim Hof. So you, happiness. So you, Let's go on happiness. What are you doing? How are you looking on that? And what are you doing for it? Get, yeah, uh, something that I'm working hard on. And I know that sounds weird, but I think... On I, average. Are you below average? Above oh, average? Oh, no, definitely. I mean, I love what I do. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing. And this is the thing. For all of the hardship, I think a lot of people will talk about, you know, the swim and they'll go, oh, your tongue, your neck chafing and everything. But for all of... I almost call it healthy hardship in that I think, you know, you're there and you kind of, it's, this isn't so bad. No one's forcing me to swim. The sunsets are pretty amazing. The sunrises are amazing. You know, swimming with dolphins, you know, the minky whale in the Bristol Channel as well. I never, this was an experience. It was just incredible. Do we have him on video? The oh, minky whale? Some, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's I'll, on video? Honestly, yeah, I'll send you the clip Let's of throw it. it into the, oh, the blog here. It's amazing that just... You know, so for those who don't know, who didn't maybe watch the Great British Swim, there was an, when I swam across the Bristol Channel, because I was swimming for 12 hours a day, the wildlife became very familiar with me and was like, oh, he's back again. He's just, you know, making... You made, his, you made friends. Loads of friends. <laughs> loads of... Probably the jellyfish. That's nice. <laughs> but this minky whale, um, it, it was swimming around me and swimming under me. It was blowing bubbles in my face. And, and I remember I turned to Matt and I said, like, whoa, like, what is that? And he goes, it's a minky whale. He says, it's fine. What it's was fine. his name? I don't know. I didn't name it. it was, I think it was a girl. What do you mean? Poor, poor thing. Well, you're right, actually. We spent a lot of time together. <laughs> we, we think it was a female. So the reason we say that is because I said, Matt, what is going on? And this minky whale was just like, wouldn't leave me alone. It was kind of like swimming under me, like I said, and everything. For five miles all the way to Wales, this minky whale followed me. And I said, Matt, what is going on? And he said, I think it's I a think she felt for you. This is it. This is it. So Matt said, I think it's a female. And I think that she thinks that you're an injured she seal. She wanted to help. Yeah, she did. So she guided me all the way to us. And then at, when we looked on the marine tracker, as there's the, uh, the actual depth of the sea, it got a little bit shallower. That whale kind of breached one more time as if to say, you know, you're safe now your weird sea dwelling mammal and then like <laughs> let me carry on to whales and it was uh so yeah so to go back to your your original question about happiness i think 
you always find some unbelievable moments. And I love what you just said there just about when I said, what about the hardship? What about the sacrifice? And you just went, it was worth the winning. You know, so you knew that there's this, this ability to sacrifice now, but have this form of elation that, that so few people will understand. I mean, I, I, you know, is, is that fair to say that you almost knew that you were sacrificing now, but what you were going to get was just going to be incredible? Yeah, the problem was I never believed I'd get it. Um, really? So even with that and then managing to win is another cool thing for all of you listeners who don't believe in yourself. <laughs> what? what? Really? You don't have to believe in yourself to have huge success. This is amazing. And anyways, you can't, everybody says believe in yourself, believe in yourself, it's bullshit. You but can't just is, flip the switch and start believing in yourself. It just doesn't work like that. But this is incredible. So there like you what you're describing is just basically, like when you were talking about, you know, every, every champion has flaws. It's just how much you can learn to limit your limitations on that. Yep. And it's now the same. You're saying you don't have to believe in yourself. You can have flaws. This is, inc- have you, have you, are you going to write about this? You, I am writing a book soon, yes. This is incredible. It won't, be, it won't be about Formula One. It'll be about human performance and personal development, yeah. Which is incredible. Because I love the, I love the whole uh, space. When is that coming out? I'm going to pre-order. When Are you going to order it? Well, 100%. I'm going to pre-order now. <laughs> I'll I'm going to put fr- my order in I'll now. give you a free copy. <laughs> right, this is amazing. But this is, so you, you're almost like, I love this. But that's the thing. I think like when you look at uh, Nassim Taleb, a famous economist, and, and I, one of the quotes of his that I always love, he said... Black Swan. Exactly, Black Swan Theory. Wow, yeah. And he was talking about, as humans, facing limited knowledge, always resort to prescribed ideas and narratives. And it's always like we're trying to put things into pigeonholes, and we're trying to understand how the world works. It's like with food, when we go, oh, calories, calories, yes, that's how food works. And, and we look, I mean, you know, few people understand that the calorie was invented by a French physician who had his head in a steam engine and needed to basically measure what that energy was putting out. So he, he invented this idea of a calorie. It wasn't long before um, a guy called Wilbur, actually, he, he measured the thermic effect of food. So he burnt food and measured its exothermic effect, so how many calories it was giving off. Once we had that, we then introduced it to the American food system. And it wasn't long before now we all understand, you know, that calorie counting, this idea of, you know, that food has this number of calories is, is what we understand now. But food is far more intricate than that. You know, it, it gets so much more, we're, we're extracting far more than calories from food, vitamins, minerals, phytochemicals, everything gets really intricate. But we humans like to think we know how things work. So we're just like, yes, calories and food, we've got it. But it's exactly what you're describing now as well, where I think sports psychologists like to say, this is how the brain works. And we like to think we know how it works. And we put things into pigeonholes. Again, Nassim Talas, facing limited knowledge, we resort to prescribed ideas and narratives. And what I love about what you're doing is just, no, it's far more intricate than that. And no one can argue because ultimately you did it. You know, you are a case study, so you can't argue. But I have to add that my sports psychologist says I don't really fit into his concepts. <laughs> right. So, he, wait, so, so in sports, we call that like an outlier. So, so he's saying you're an anomaly. A, li- a little bit, yes. Really? And he's seen a couple of sports within his time. So. <laughs> no, that's amazing. Well, you said it doesn't make sense how you're, no, what, you're I'm just, wired I'm different. Little, well, no, but because it's usually that is a little bit of a weakness where it'll be, it's not the, I think it's, not the um, strongest form of uh, sport of of, um, of personality for having great success, right. because generally the the people who are most successful, and especially the ones who win many many championships and have a lot of success, more on the very very self confident uh, side. Yeah, uh, the tendency towards that. Yeah, so that's why. Uh, wow. But anyways, 
But there's also weaknesses with that because then you don't question yourself as much. Yeah. Because you always think the other one's wrong, I'm right anyways, and you don't learn as, as much. So mm. that's a big weakness of those kind of people. Because yeah. this guy's uh, Steve Trapmore. Um, he was the head uh, gold medalist rower, uh, but also coached the Cambridge rowing team. And it always stuck with me that he said, I said, what makes a great rower? And we were looking at um, the uh, the British rowing team at the time. So uh, Steve Redgrave, they said, with Steve Redgrave, he was he was strong. Like he came from a rugby background. And they always talk about one of the first times that they introduced him to Olympic lifting. Apparently, you know, they were like, here's Olympic lifting. This is a clean and jerk. And you disappear under the bar, speed of movement. Apparently, he just ripped and reverse bicep curled like 160 out the floor. And they were like, uh... That's not how you do it, but you kind of did it, you know. And they were like, he's so strong. With Matthew Pinson, they said he has the VO2 of a horse. They were like, your lungs make no sense. And with James Cracknell, he was able to just tap into that lactic threshold, you know, where your lungs are burning, your legs are burning. And they would say, right, you're now at your anaerobic lactic threshold. You're there. And he would just go, nope, no, I'm not. And they go, no, you are. And he go, nope, the computer's lying. So he was able to just go into this horrible, like in that real hole and just like live in there and survive in there and just that like lactic threshold cave. And what Steve Trapmore said to me is he said, but what's interesting, there's no blueprint for a great rower, but the best athletes are the best at doing what they do best. I said, what do you mean by that? I said, if you're strong, you're really strong. You know, looking at the, even football, the Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi debate. With Messi, he's just, he's a magician. He's unbelievable. Like with, with the ball at his feet, it just looks incredible. It's, poet, it's like poetry in motion. You look at Cristiano Ronaldo and he's a specimen. He's an athletic phenom. He will leap higher than any other. And he's incredible. But they do... They're the best at doing what they do best. And I think it's probably the same. That what you're saying here is, you know, yeah, there's no blueprint. But I was really good at doing what I did better than anyone else. So looking at other drivers, for instance, is there something, even looking at now or past, what were the, is there something that the past champions did better than anyone else? Is there, is there an attribute that they just owned better than anyone else and just, just was able to play to their strengths whilst limiting their limitations? Uh, there's different ways of becoming champion, uh, as I said, but I think the greatest champions, um, I had Michael Schumacher as my teammate for three years. So I was really able to study him and I learned, first of all, passion. Unbelievable passion for what he's, uh, for what he's doing. Unbelievable drive, dedication, every day, all day. I mean, the, the, the power he puts into to win, yeah? Unbelievable. And the attention to detail. For example, he pioneered that it's not just about driving, but there's a huge technological opportunity to use for your advantage. So he like loaded the steering wheel up with buttons. Um, he, he pioneered the, the way of, even on a qualifying lap, change the switches from corner to corner to optimize for each different kind of corner that's coming. Because with the electronics on the steering wheel, you can change like a uh, hundred different parameters on the car, which can transform the balance of the car like entirely. And he, he pushed everybody forward on that. The others, they were just driving. And he's driving at the same ability as they are, plus thinking corner to corner, how to set his car up on the steering wheel with all the 30 different switches. And in a qualifying lap, where you're maxed out all the way through, and he had this capacity left to then perfect every corner, which, and every corner is different, yeah? One corner you break in a straight line, all the way down to like 60, and then you turn in the last moment. Uh, another corner, you're going in very, very high speed, totally different, and they require totally different electronic settings. If you have the capacity, mm. most, most drivers don't. Even today, there's some drivers that haven't figured that out yet. 
Um, but so they didn't uh, adopt that? No, and this is something that I really learned then from, from Michael. Um, and I, I, I pretty much mastered as well afterwards. And it's this uh, having the capacity left to really um, use that so powerfully. And it, it can give you up to a tenth per corner sometimes. It, depending on how extreme the corner is and how unique it is, it's huge, huge, huge. And, uh, and, and it's a huge opportunity but to, to again, find an area where you can beat all the others. Bit, and, and, and that's adding more complexity to what is already an incredibly complex... As a, as a t- yeah, you're going 350 on the straights. Things are flying at you. And at the same time, you have to have the capacity left to think about all these new settings for the next corner, which could be in two and a half seconds time and flip the switches. <laughs> And then do the braking and but get that all right. And but if you're prepared to do that, that will give you the edge, essentially. Well, there's an opportunity for extra lap time, as in many different areas. What a gladiator. Like in his head, huh? Yeah. And in a natural way, he doesn't even have to think about it. And he's just, he wakes up in the morning and it's like, how can I destroy my opponents mental, <laughs> mentally? <laughs> of which the teammate is the first guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but now see, so you're, you're, I mean, such a nice guy sitting here chatting to you. So you're I'm saying, actually, I'm actually like that, which is a bit of a problem. So right. I had to learn, I had to learn to become more fierce, right. which I really made as a big part of my whole mental uh, work. I, I really made that a big part of it to learn to become more fierce, more, more, uh, less. I mean, just push the push the boundaries more, yeah. more become more angry sometimes in certain situations. So you had to and learn. don't accept don't accept to hold back, but to push right into it when it starts to feeling uncomfortable. And when like Michael would put me in, into an uncomfortable situation, I would stand up and I would say my opinion very strongly. Whereas growing up, I would then always go hide. Yeah. yeah. So you and this is something I, I, I learned also through understanding because I understood the power of that, of, of speaking and, and, and pulling down the curtain and, and saying how you are and what you're feeling openly. It has an incredible force. And so I really learned that, yeah. And then, for example, we were in the engineering uh, situation, and even when my strategy was being talked about, it was just being explained to Michael, not to me. So his strategy was explained to him, and my strategy was explained to him, <laughs> and, and nobody spoke to me, me about my strategy because he just commanded such uh, such respect and such power, yeah, yeah, in the room. He was like God. I mean, he's like God. And did he do um, that prior to success? And it was, or is it something that you learnt? Does that help with success that people go, listen, you know, he's speaking or for instance, or did you start to command it even before you won? Um, well, the success happened, uh, helps a lot, of course. Yeah. But you, you can, you have to do it even, you, you shouldn't depend on, on success. Um, you can do that even without success. And in fact, I did because I hadn't even won a race at the time. I was a non-race winner and he was a seven time world champion. So I had to build that but respect. But you looked at that and said, I need to command that same sort of like... Totally, movement. yeah, totally. Yeah. I never managed because, I mean, he really is God, but, but I really wow. managed to make some big steps and, and also position myself more strongly internally. And, and then I would tell that engineer, who is one of the best that we have, I would tell him, please, it's very important to me that you address me in the same manner as Michael um, when we're sitting in these meetings together. And, uh, and then he, he listened and, and it really has impact and he then did that. And I'm very thankful. And, and, you know, that's how you step by step then work your way into. And then Michael gets more respect because he sees that. And it's like a step by step, uh, step by step progress, which every time you do it, it's, it's very, it's like suffering huh? because to open yourself up like that and, and say your mind is, is very tough. Um, but I always push myself. And, and that's one of my biggest learnings, the importance of pushing into suffering because that's where you progress. Don't hide away when you get, in, when you go, uh, go, go into, or when there's situations which will cause suffering, 
push right into them flat out. And I'm sure you're very good at that. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. They just find like with embrace your, with the type discomfort. Of, with the type of person that you are. Yeah. But that's huge for, for improving as a human being. It's like one of my most important learnings. And now I'm very happy to do that. Yeah. Even yesterday, I held a keynote speech in, in front of Unilever, which is uh, one of the biggest global companies. And there was all the leadership there. I couldn't even speak in front of my school class when I was <laughs> six years old or 10 years old from fear and shyness and fear of them uh, thinking I'm an idiot or, or whatever. And now I can even speak in front of the global leaders uh, of a global company on my own in a keynote um, with nothing but a few notes on a paper. And it's just because I've done it over and over and pushed into the discomfort. Yeah. And that's made me, made me progress. So let, no, I think it's a good moment to come to an end now. Um, let's cover what is your biggest learning that you're taking home from our chat today. And then I'm going to cover mine. I've got to be honest, what you just said then I loved in that get comfortable being uncomfortable because certainly when you were racing and when I was swimming, there's nothing comfortable, you know, about swimming around Great Britain. But but ultimately, um, things don't get easier, you get stronger. I think that's that's the thing. And it's exactly what you just described then. That's completely task dependent. So it doesn't necessarily matter if it's swimming, uh, you know, motor racing. It, it, it doesn't matter. It's just you know, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And I love what you said there as well, just about taking ownership. I think it's exactly the same that during the swim, I had to learn about, you know, tides, weather, you know, all sorts, because ultimately when you're empowered, and I think it's something now we're so keen to outsource um, expertise. Just tell me, people just want to be told what to do. You know, I, I just, I, I want things really simple. It's like, yes, simplicity, absolutely, but equally take ownership and empower yourself. You know, I, th I always say even with health and fitness, there's many things that you should outsource. Um, you know, your finances, maybe if you're not very good at building work, I'm not very good, I can't put up some shelves, I outsource that. But with health and fitness, that is something, and certainly your career, whatever it is, that is not something you should completely outsource. I think it's something you need to take um, ownership of. But also, I think one of the biggest things, and I love what you just said about the, uh, <laughs> I just still got images of you meditating while just like going, <laughs> you know, I think that's incredible. Didn't happen though, huh? No, I no, didn't no, meditate no, in the but race I, I find it, it didn't I, work out. I like that for me is, yeah, to, to have even just a second in that meditative state when the world around you is just, you know, stress and stimuli. There's that saying. No, I didn't, I didn't manage to do it. No, no, no. I know you didn't. I I'm think like, it's possible. Yes. Yeah, no. I know, and that's what I'm saying. I'm just kind of like that for me is a little bit of a goal that's so like only you'll probably. I want to be able to just ring you up one day and go, I did it. I was meditating when going around uh, Corrie Beckon with a jellyfish on my face. <laughs> you know, so it's this idea of like being able to tap into the right mindset at the right time, even if it's for a split second I think if you do that and you're able to actually control yourself it's incredible that's incredibly powerful but what about you what um, well uh, many things but something that I'm going to take away directly is uh, your your drive to learn as well and I really love that how you're reading a lot and, and progressing there that's that's really powerful and um, I can do more of that even more I'm doing it as well as you as you hear and see but there's always more and, uh, and so I'm going to take that away and, and dive a little bit deeper and that's something I can recommend to you listeners as well and everybody else who's in the room at the moment with us um, there's a huge ocean of opportunity to learn in the whole mental space there's geniuses who've been through exactly whatever we're experiencing every single day there's been a genius who's experienced the same and he's written it down for us in a way that it's understandable for us so it's all there uh, ready to go for us to understand 
if we just make the effort and go look for it. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, of course, in the, in the space of philosophy, psychology, whatever, so much opportunity to help yourself, to improve as a human being, to learn, to grow, mm. um, and which we don't learn in school. Like nobody tells us that there's that. It's like unbelievable. We don't learn it, no, but right. it's there. Like go for it. Let's push into it. I and, love that. It's like that success leaves clues, you know, and I love yeah. what you said about Michael Schumacher there, that it's just kind of like, yeah, just look at what people have done before. It was Isaac Newton, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants you know that's the, i love that so the best book to recommend from you now please something easy though to start off with aside from yours that i'm pre-ordering <laughs> <laughs> no, something that's easy where it really gives you a great insight into into what's out there i like i like the a monk who sold his ferrari have you heard of that wow, one no, no, no. Uh, that's worth a read really yeah, okay yeah. i mean i right i'm gonna get that one i suppose what helped me so much on the on the swim was marcus aurelius meditations okay you know, cool. so is yeah. it easy to read though yeah you can kind of dip in and out of it as well that's the nice thing that you can just pick out bits that you need at that moment in time yeah but the problem is you you, you need something which will sort of capture you huh? mm. if it's too tough to read it's it's always a challenge. Yeah. It needs to be something that's... For me, it's always easy. just something, yeah, you can apply. So, yeah, yeah with, with Marcus Aurelius's, if you, it's, it's, not, it's not so hard, you know, in that, but you'll pick things out that, will, that, I, that certainly help me. And, you just, and I think the greatest thing about that is you look, and it's just what you just said there, everything that we, all the questions and everything that we have now, we were still facing thousands of years ago. It's not changed. Human biology, human psychology has remained relatively the same. Agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, you know, the world has changed around us, but we're still faced with this, this task of running our own brains. And that's what Stoic philosophy, uh, you know, essentially teaches you. And it's something that I'm trying to now, you know, apply in the sports science realm. So yeah, certainly with something like that with, with Marcus Aurelius's work or Seneca, it's, uh, it's great to read that because it just makes you realize they face the same problems that we are now. Oh, totally, yeah. 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 Okay, uh, I just wanted to cover, so please, uh, your book, The World's Fittest Book, check it out. Yeah. I'm sure uh, there's some great learnings in that. And you're on a world tour, world tour at the moment. That's yeah, right. Speaking. Yeah. Uh, trying to give people insights. Yeah. And, and teachings about all the stuff you've learned. Yeah. So that's... Like uh, you said, it's nervous. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like, but I'm getting there. It's good. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, dear listener, thank you very much for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe if you're listening to the first time. And uh, yeah, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Ross, again. <laughs> Thank you so and, much uh, for having me. Your Thank podcast you. is called Ross Edgley, right? That's right, yeah. yeah Thank yeah. So, you so uh, much. Uh, if you're listening on my one, um, then uh, tune into Ross's podcast as well. And that's it. Over and out. Bye-bye. That was amazing.